This is It's Never Just a Game. I'm Greg Pesci. And I'm NJ Pesci. And this week, what is everybody talking about? We're talking about football. We're yep. talking about football. So we're, we're talking football. So we have a guest on today who's all about baseball. Our guest today will be Brian Hoke, who is the uh, beat writer for the New York Yankees on MLB.com. Great talking to him. Nice, I mean, nice guy. Very, very nice man. Very yeah. well informed. He's been doing this for 14 years. Long time. And interesting how he got focused early, but we'll let him tell us that in the yeah. interview. Then we have Mike in Middle America to discuss important things like popular music and some, thing, some things around baseball. Yeah. So that's what we've got on the show today. Um, but we want to talk about football first. We must bow. <laughs> This is interesting. This because it, so college football, the big news this week is that um, first the Pac-12. If I'm right, is Pac-12 first, Greg? I was it them? I think they were second. Okay, was it Big Ten? Yes. All right, I thought Pac-12 first, but maybe you're right. It's Big Ten. Yep. So they declare no fall sports. Yep. None. And the Pac-12 follows and says, "We're not doing it either." Yep. So football is out for the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. Does it, does it mean basketball is out? No, it does not mean yet. Like the WCC also, because I'm a little interested in that from a basketball standpoint, they also said no fall sports, but basketball is considered a winter sport. Okay. It, it, it starts in October. It does. I actually had this conversation with Greg Rebell, who was on our show once, and because uh, I, I wasn't sure, and I said, hey, Greg, what about basketball? And we were texting back and forth, and he said, um, it's a winter sport. And I thought, well, I was born in October, and I always thought that I was born in, in the autumn. <laughs> and um, and Midnight Madness will be October 15th or something around that. But nonetheless, technically speaking, basketball is a winter sport. So basketball could still be on. Yes. But no football. And then we have a bunch of other leagues that mm-hmm. say they're not playing. Yes. Um, well, right now, if you look at it from me, again, we're as a homer here, I think BYU is the only football pro- program in the West. That's still talking about it because right the now. Mountain West said. Yeah, they said the same thing. They're out. They're out. So, Big Twelve is still in, and so far the SEC, of course, and the ACC, and the ACC. Right, you're going to have to work very hard to make them stop. It's like, but is is football a regional game? We predicted this, Greg. Yep, we did. Yeah. Doing the retrospective sense making that we were taught to do, we said the they're not going to you're not going to shut them down. And by the way, the NCAA can't shut them down. Nope. They also found that out, really. I mean, we all knew this, but no one, no one talks about it. And so the NCAA, I believe, tries to exercise a little bit of its authority by saying there'll be no champion this year. Mm-hmm. No champion. Like, do you, do you think Alabama cares? <laughs> do you think the people in Alabama care? That the NCAA said there'll be no champion? No. no. Do, you, do you think the Auburn-Alabama game is the national championship in their minds? Right. They don't care that you're not going to get a trophy from that. Dr. Pepper cares, right? Because what, what are they going to do? I mean, the, the economic impact of no football on those conferences is massive. Yes, it is. Massive. And if you look at it as individual schools, again, locally, again, article here this week, earlier this week by a friend of ours, it says it's $50, $60 million for the University of Utah that they lose. $60 million. Yep. And we did see, I mean, the Pac-12 money coming in, you can just take a look at the University of Utah's campus and you can see the impact of that. No doubt. The building that they have done there, yep. it's remarkable. 
the access to that cash from the Pac-12. And people do actually have real jobs in the sports business, and they're going they're going to lose them. They're going to lose them. Some already have. Yeah, and other sports will never be played again. Now, you know, there's another the other side of this. People saying, "Oh, that's all you care about is money. You don't care about the health and safety of these student athletes." And I guess you gotta. I guess you, I mean you have to say that that's true. I mean, not not that that's true. You have to say that that's a legitimate, a very legitimate concern. It but, is a concern. So, so I listened, I was listening to someone again on the way to the global studios for, for this recording this morning of it's never just a game and listen to someone again. I don't, I don't, we, we just have to just be more ridiculous, Greg, in what we're saying, because people just seem, and they're on, they're on the radio talking about these things. And then they say, you don't have to believe me, but that's the fact, right? Like this, if that. this is, yeah. a, you know, I know this and you don't. Yep. And unless he said, unless you are someone who works in an athletic department that may lose its job, you have no right to opine about college football. Well, that's what's that's in vogue in the United States, right? Yeah. Today, if I don't like what you say, I tell you how you have no right to say it. Yeah, you don't. You, this is not for you to say. Even if parents, he said, sign waivers for their kids to go, they don't have the right to do that either. He said that's not how it works. You, you, Greg, can't live without a Saturday of football, and because of that, you'll put these kids at risk. Because you don't have anything else to do. Maybe you should do something else on your Saturday, he was saying. So Which, let me ask you this question. Did you play uh, Division One football? I did not. Did I play Division One football? No. Did our younger brother play Division One football? He did not. Okay. Did we play high school football? We did. Yeah. How many of us had physical injuries as a result of it? Every one of us. Every one of us. Yeah. I love these people who are so... All of a sudden, they just all of a sudden now they have this great conscience, and they say you cannot get the virus, which we don't want anyone to get. Right. But we're talking about football, okay? You had I, I remember watching you hobble home from high school, getting a knee drained. I broke my ankle. Our brother's back was so bad he couldn't even play right. most of his senior year. Right. And where the heck is all the concern about those physical? I can't live on Saturday. I mean, there is duplicity on both sides of this argument. Yes. Without exception, I found it very interesting that someone called in. And by the way, there's a lot of requests for call-ins here on the show, Greg. We're going to have to do something to make that possible. Given the fact that I'm technologically challenged, you're on the cutting edge of technology. Oh, yeah, but, right. But uh, this guy called in and said, why do, you, why do you do sports talk radio when you hate us and sports so much? That what he said this morning when you were listening? He said, that's what a caller said to him. What are you talking about? You hate it so much. Why do you even do this show, basically? You hate us. Because he was saying, you, you are ridiculous if you want to watch college football. It's you. You're the, you're the problem. You've got nothing else in your life. You just have to see something on Saturday. And you're willing to put these kids at risk. And then he went into this crap argument about how these kids are in college for their education, not for sports. Well, I, I like and that. they don't get paid. They do get a scholarship, which is, and by the way, if your kids could have had $25,000 a year to go to school, your life would have been a little bit easier. A little bit. So it's not, it's not, it's not and we do know that right now, what, California schools, are they suing for pay? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so this was just an insane argument. And what he said at the end of it is both sides are going to argue. You can tell right now that the ACC, SEC, and the Big 12 commissioners and presidents want the whole season to work so they can turn around and say to everybody else, see, I told you, you're overreacting to this virus. Now, will somebody get sick on these teams? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Will any of those students who don't play get sick? Absolutely. Probably a higher percentage. Yes. So he's not saying anything about the liability the university takes by having students on campus. 
It's the, it's the same, Greg, right? It's the same. You're just arguing because they're playing a contact sport? That's what I'm trying to say is that all of a sudden now you're worried about a contact sport. Before, when we were breaking my, my ankle, your knee, nobody was talking about it. No. No. So this the, the, just very... I shouldn't say nobody, it, very yeah. few. But the economic impact will be massive on those programs. And people will say it's about money. And, and, and I just, I got a question for you. As we're here in the United States of America, which is still largely capitalist, um, what isn't? Everything. I mean, everybody's got to eat. What, yeah. what isn't? Is that, is that like, is that, now I do think it's fair to say, um, is, and do you put people in a risk that they shouldn't be in because you're just, a, you know, just trying to get all the money that you possibly can? It, that's a fair argument. But to say that, you know, it's about money. It's about money last year when there was no um, virus. It'll be about money next year, hopefully, when there's no virus. So, I mean, all of a sudden this year, we were going to just carve out the sanctity year yeah. where money doesn't yes. matter come like, on because you have you because you want to make your point now if we haven't asked one another and people might assume based on what we're saying that we want college football football to be played what i want is normalcy this is not normal no and i will not accept this new normal crap that's floating around it's not new normal and and I'll, let's go back to the, the time we had the spanish flu a hundred years ago people didn't stop going to stadiums no people went to stadiums for a hundred years before the next pandemic happened Nothing happened from a, from a pandemic standpoint, and people weren't getting sick for generations because they were going to watch the Yankees in 1934. That, that just didn't happen. And I don't expect it will happen going forward because we already have places like New Zealand where they're packing stadiums to watch their sporting events. Yeah. So, so I, I, don't want to, I don't want to accept this as normal. But it's gone pretty far already. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's going to be very... Because the, Take a look at the calendar, and you realize football is supposed to start pretty darn soon, in a couple of weeks. Right. Right? And, and then you still have these big conferences. I mean, whether we like it or not, and sometimes I, over the years I've complained about how the SEC is supposedly in football everything, and uh, nobody else can get any respect at all. But the fact is they are who they are, and, and they're still in this deal right now. And, and will they be able to hold on? Yeah, the, I think the only thing this guy said today that made any sense— and the, I would say the only thing, because I don't think he made sense with anything. And then he is, he's like, I don't care if you send me your tweets. I don't care. You will not convince me. But you're trying to convince me right. that I'm insane. You're trying to gaslight me. I just found out that term. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. The fact that you don't understand it is, yeah. is evidence that you're a boomer. There's gas and lights. We try to keep those apart. <laughs> so so he, the only thing he said that made sense was college football could change tomorrow. It's not like they have this thing figured out, and they could tomorrow cancel the whole season. Absolutely. Could be done. Uh, that, and that is true. And I think once things start, people will get the virus. And they're not going to stop and ask, did four guys in the biology class get the virus? They no one asked that. No. It's going to be some, someone got sick on a team, and that just, that ch- the whole thing needs to be shut down. So anyway, this, this one, it, it, look, I'm on the side of, of them playing. I, I would like to see people play too as safely as possible, but I'd yeah. like to see people play yeah. because I think most of these players want to play. Yeah, they're saying they do. Um, then people will just argue they're not. Um, they're not. They're just kids. They're what just do they kids. know? Yeah, they don't know anything. They're whist- They're and, and now now the thing that I love the most is that 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 their um, major major health heart issues are coming as a result of the coronavirus. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. So I didn't hear about it before. 
No, we didn't hear about it before. Now it's possible. I mean, we're, this is a novel virus. We know as much as everybody else right. does, everybody, Greg, every, about it. As I'm saying, every, it's a novel virus. Right. Right? Everybody's kind of trying to figure things out right. here. And and even the experts have been pretty wrong, uh, um, have been wrong on pretty frequently here. Yeah. And does that mean that they're necessarily stupid? No. I think it's more a function of nobody knows. They're right. trying to figure it out. But people speaking as if they know. Yeah, I know. It's a, that's, that's the amazing part. Really, really is shocking. So, so let's you know swing back around. Yeah, don't be confused. I want them to play. Don't be confused. I, I think some of the arguments about them playing are ridiculous, and some of the arguments about them playing are not ridiculous. The same. I get it. I'd, I'd like them to play. Um, but think about when we talked to Steve Gelati, the chief revenue officer, former chief revenue officer at Scripps, talking about fall sports and what that would mean. Um, from an inventory standpoint of advertising inventory and then the cost. Now, if you, if you have three conferences and a few independents playing, I mean, I have to believe the price is going to be astronomical oh, for yeah. that space. Yes. So, and, and how about this? I know there's a difference between an amateur and pro and some of these um, players are actually minors in, in college, but can't you take some, some of the very same arguments and apply it to the NFL? Yeah. Right? So what are we going to say? Are we not going to do that? They're going to do that. I think they're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, Jerry Jones said they're going to do that with people in the stadium. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. what the, I mean, but the, the revenue that you could make, if, if the only game that week, maybe three games you're going to get on television, would be Clemson against Virginia or um, Alabama against Florida. People can, I mean, they're going to pay huge money to yes. be advertising on that piece. We're going to watch that game. Yeah, we are. Yep. And so are millions of other yeah. people. And so that, and that, the other interesting piece, Greg, was having someone like the Nebraska coach say that Nebraska is going to play football. Yeah. And then people saying you're in a conference and you, you go ahead and try that and you're going to get fined and punished and pounded. You can't benefit from being in a conference for years and then turn around and say, when it doesn't benefit me, I'm going to go play someplace else. I'm going to go play someone like BYU who's independent. I'll go play against Notre Dame. I'll play, I'll play Kansas Army. Yep. Army just so I can play. And they're yeah. telling him you, you, you'll get kicked out of the, the yeah. thing. You'll get punished and fined. Yeah, this is, this is all new stuff. It's, it's good for one group only. As always, the lawyers. Yeah, and it makes because there'll be there'll be some <laughs> yeah, lawsuits yeah. about this. Yeah, so I would just just to see how that goes. It sounds like people are declaring things, just mm-hmm. flying these test balloons up there, shooting that uh, salvo across the bow to see what would happen. Meanwhile, I just keep looking at the calendar. Yeah, we're going to get an answer soon. Yeah, it, so they pushed it back. So then there's the other piece, Greg, and and we might disagree on this one. Um. Spring football, yeah, in my mind, is a red herring. <laughs> spring football is a is a lie. Spring <laughs> spring football is a play kit. It's a pacifier. It is whatever sugar water you need. So you go, oh okay, I'm not Jonesing anymore. No one's playing spring football. I'm not sure. I totally agree on that. Here it comes, people. No, I'm not sure. I totally agree on that one. I think I think it could be possible. I think it might be a more limited season. I, but I think it could be possible. I do. I, I agree with what you're saying. For some people, this is just to try to sort of kick the can down the road and not have to deal with it. But I, I think you actually could possibly make that work, maybe in a more limited fashion. So let's just t- let's talk about that for a second. Spring football. 
not going to happen. <laughs> and here's, here's the reason why it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because if you are a junior or senior who's leaving to the NFL, you're not playing in spring football. That moment has come and is gone. If you're Trevor Lawrence and you don't get to play this fall, why in the name of Moses would you play in the spring? Uh, he probably would. You won't do it. You're, you're going to get drafted. But there are a lot of players who don't are not in that situation. Sure. You can get you won't get full teams. You'll get people who are saying I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then you're thinking, okay, now you're worried about the health and safety of these kids every second of the pandemic. But now you're going to have them play six to, to ten football games in the spring and then twelve football games in the fall? Yeah. Pros wouldn't do that. No. People getting paid millions wouldn't do that, wouldn't agree to that. They don't even want to agree to extra extra um preseason games for Pete's sake. It's just too risky. Especially in football. And now you're going to take them and say, you're going to play when? February? And I just want to know this, too. What's this going to do to my man, Mark Pope, and what he's going to be doing in the uh, NCAA tournament? That's going to mess it up. Yes, it will. You, and that is a legitimate concern. Yes, it is. And you're, so bad enough, but now, now you're going to have March Madness happening in football. Yeah. Can't have that. No. We finally got a team that can do it, all right? No. The world's got to bend to this. We have our needs, and they need to be met. <laughs> That's what they are. Coach Pope, we're out there for you, pushing for, for basketball and football to be moved, to play in the fall and stay in the fall, yep. out of the way of basketball. So I don't think, I don't think spring football is going to happen. Well, let's see. Yeah. You heard it here first. No spring football. Okay, well, I'm awake at least that much. <laughs> We don't drink coffee. I don't need coffee. I'm wide awake right here. I didn't even have an English muffin toasted extra uh, today. So, um, well, let's just get to the interview. We had Brian Hogan from MLB.com and covering the New York Yankees, our New York Yankees. Let's get to that. Really excited today on It's Never Just a Game. We mentioned last week that we would have more of a Yankee focus, which is, of course upsets a few of our Red Sox fan friends. But really excited about the guest we have on here today. So let me introduce our guest. We have Brian Hoke with us. And Brian has covered New York Yankee baseball for the past two decades. Working the New York Yankees clubhouse as an MLB.com beat reporter since 2007. Brian is the author of... The Baby Bombers, the inside story of the next Yankees dynasty, and co-author of Mission 27, a new boss, a new ballpark, and one last ring for the Yankees' core four. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, what an introduction. Uh, happy to be on with you. Really, this really, is like Chris, this is like Christmas morning for us. <laughs> we're supposed to stay calm here, Brian, but we you know we're we're excited. Inside stories, talking about the Yankees, and before we get too far into that, um, we just want to talk about because because it's never just a game; is about life, business, and sports. You've seemed to be able to bring those things together in your life. This is your business, and it's all about sports. So, if you wouldn't mind telling us when that happened for you, when you thought this is what I want to do, and I want to do it uh, with the Yankees. Oh, man. Well, um, I guess you got to roll the clock all the way back to when I was in high school. I was a freshman in high school. I grew up in Suffern, New York, uh, which is in Rockland County, about 45 minutes north of uh, Yankee Stadium. And um, 
uh, I was, you know, it's the it's the mid 1990s. It's when uh, the internet, dial-up internet, the World Wide Web is all coming, uh, becoming a thing. And I was fortunate to just be in the right place at the right time. I think I always had an interest in newspapers and journalism. You know, I remember reading uh, the paper every Sunday and then tearing it apart and looking at the box scores and uh, reading what people were writing about the Mets and the Yankees. And um, I was interested in baseball like I loved baseball you know just like any kid that I grew up with you know we'd ride our bikes down and uh, pay 50 cents for the baseball cards and uh, um, all that and so it was really baseball and journalism I think were two things that uh, were rooted in me very early on and uh, when you add the internet there um, you know we're talking about the mid-90s it's the wild wild west there's no yeah there is a yankees.com there's no metacom um MLB.com is very primitive at that time. And actually my first, um, you know, I started out a Yankee fan. It's convoluted, but I'll give you the short, short version. I started out a Yankee fan. I kind of fell off of baseball in the strike in 94. And my father was a Mets fan. My grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan who became a Mets fan. So in the spring of 96, they kind of hooked me and said, hey, come come watch the Mets with us. You know, they've got these young pitchers coming up, Jason Isringhausen, Bill Pulsifer, Paul Wilson, Generation K. And, you know, I, I kind of fell in and I was watching the Mets and I decided to make a web page about the Mets. I guess today we would call it a blog, but th- okay. those didn't really exist at the time. And, um, I, you know, it gained popularity. People were reading what I was writing. So I just never stopped writing, I guess. And um, um, uh, the offshoot of that was I got to be a Mets fan in 1996, 1998, 1999, 2000, while the Yankees are winning the World <laughs> right, Series every right, year. So right. that was tough being yeah. in high school those years. But uh, it led to internship opportunities with the Mets. Uh, it led to internship opportunity with the Mets. I went uh, from graduating high school. One week later, I was in the, uh, the clubhouse at Shea Stadium. And once I got that foot in the door, I just never wanted to – to let it close. So I just continued writing as much as I could and, um, you know, pursued journalism in college. But uh, I think to, to really tell the story, you got to go back to 14 years old in my parents' house, you know, just in my bedroom and with a, uh, with a computer and a dial up internet connection. So, you know, um, I, I love the book, uh, baby bombers and, uh, it's great from cover to cover, but in the back of it in the acknowledgement section, you. you have a couple, you have a couple of, Nice pieces that you wrote about you, to your family, both your parents and your in-laws. And I love the piece where you say you talk about being at Disney World, lugging a compact desktop up a flight of stairs during your family vacation. So you you're obviously dedicated early. It's a very cool story. I remember that. Yeah. Wow. I you know thank you for reading. The, thank you for reading the acknowledgments. That way. <laughs> right. Most people just right. skip right past that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I definitely remember loading that desktop computer into the the back of the minivan and and carrying it up the flight of stairs in a, the motel or wherever we were staying in. So yeah, that was um, yeah. I guess I, I I guess I started as at an early age there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Brian, we um, love the fact that. Um, You've covered the 2009 Yankees and um, the Mission 27 10 years later talking about that World Series. Um, would love to hear about some of the some of the things you discovered behind the scenes that you didn't expect you were going to uncover. A story or two that the that our listeners would love to to get the scoop on that you maybe didn't expect even to hear yourself. Yeah, you know what was so much fun about that project for Mark Feinstein and myself was it was a like 
a lot like a high school reunion or a college reunion because those relationships, you know, a lot of these guys we hadn't seen or talked to in in years, and they were out of the game, and um, they you just pick up where you left off, and they were actually, uh, for the most part, very eager to share those stories. I mean, it was time of their careers, so we found out so many things. You know, one of my favorite uh, revelations that we have in the book is that Mariano Rivera was pitching with a strained oblique during that World Series, and they were not sure about him going out there in game six as the clincher. And, you know, this was something that had affected him during the American League Championship Series against the Angels. And uh, they were having the rookies like Dave Robertson and Brian Bruni run into the clubhouse, the Yankee Stadium, go get heat packs for Mo, bring him back out to the bullpen because he was in so much pain. He was in so much pain that the morning of game six, his wife told him, please don't pitch tonight. You can't pitch tonight. And Mariano said, I have to pitch. It's the World Series. And I think he wound up throwing something like 40 pitches as the Yankees won the World Series uh, that night in November 2009. But if the series had gone another game, Joe Girardi said that they wouldn't have had Mariano for game seven. So that was very interesting. It went unreported at the time. We didn't know that. And, um, you know, it's funny how these conversations just kind of opened up. I think it was Mike Harkey, the bullpen coach, and said, you know, well, Mo was dealing with that thing. And it was like, what thing? We didn't know about that. And he, he didn't realize that we didn't know about it. But um, so it was kind of, it was like you pull these little strings and you get all these things. And um, another example was um, we were talking to Kevin Long, the hitting coach, who uh, went on to be with the Mets and the Nationals. He's, he's filled with Washington. But he mentioned in an offhand comment that, you know, one of the best things that they had was that A-Rod party. And we said, wait, what, what, what a rod party. And then, so he kind of spilled the beans and told us about this whole big birthday party out that it was in July. And, um, you know, he was renting a mansion in Westchester. He, he was dating Kate Hudson, movie actress at the time. And she threw this big bash where everybody had these tuxedos and, you know, formal wear. And, you know, they had a catered by Nobu at this very kind of swanky joint. And, uh, AJ Burnett and CC Sabathia come in and they look at the giant Olympic sized swimming pool and they say, yeah, you know, we're all winding up in that pool tonight. Right. And they didn't know if Alex was going to be cool with that, but, um, you know, Alex actually thought it was really funny. And, um, so by the end of the night, Joe Girardi is one of the first people jumping in. Everybody's going in with their clothes on their formal wear. Nobody packed swim trunks or anything. So, uh, one after another, it's kind of like a, a summer camp party, and they're all jumping into the pool with these, with uh, you know, the tuxedos, and the women are in nightgowns and stuff, and um, they're all going to the pool. And the one guy who did not think it was funny, still did not think it was funny, ten years later when we talked to him was Dave Robertson. He was a rookie at the time. He was wearing a suit that A Rod had actually bought him. It was probably the most expensive thing he owned at the time. It was like a two thousand dollars suit, and he did not want to go in the water to mess it up. And um, you know, AJ was actually threatening to push him in, and there were almost some punches thrown at wow. this party because um, Dave Robertson was so angry that he was going to ruin this two thousand dollars suit. And Kevin Long told him, he said, "Just get in the pool. Yeah, yeah Alex will buy you another a suit." <laughs> you know. So, uh, but he was still pissed about it. I talked to him uh, for the book and we were at Target Field in the clubhouse. And um, if you know Dave Robertson a little, he's kind of a happy-go-lucky 
you know, friendly guy from Alabama. And, you know, we were talking about 2009. And I said, so tell me about this party. And his face just darkened. The mood just darkened. And he said, I didn't think it was funny then. And I don't think it's funny now. And I said, whoa, you're still mad about 10 years later. And so, um, you know, those are just two examples. We had a, so much fun going in and kind of uh, peeling back the, the layers of what was going on in 2009, what we thought was going on in 2009, and then what was really happening behind the scenes. So uh, on that note, Brian, wh- when when are you planning to write the, the Mission 28 book? You know, we, we need that uh, well, now, we Brian. we got to win another World need, Series, it's right? It's killing so, us. Um, you know, we've been waiting, um, and um, so that was uh, – that was definitely the, the crux of the first book I did, which was the Baby Bombers, which was uh, essentially covered the transition from Derek Jeter to Aaron Judge. And, right. um, you know, as you mentioned with the, the title, The Next Yankees Dynasty, we kind of figured by now they would win one. They've right. come close. But, um, you know, I'm going to pin this one on the Astros. I think that uh, they, they've had their season ended twice in three years by Houston. And now it comes to turn out that uh, Houston was not exactly above board with everything they were doing. So um, yeah, I'm going to pin that on Houston, and uh, we'll see. I mean, this one, this, this Yankee team looks pretty good this year. I think that adding Garrett Cole was huge for that team. We'll see what happens with Judge if he's able to stay healthy. But I think top to bottom, this is this 2020 Yankee team looks as good of a club as I think I've covered in my time on the Yankee beat, and it's it's too bad we're only getting 60 games to see them. How um, how different is it for you, Brian, to, to cover them in, in the world of COVID? It's strange. Um, you know, it's, it's completely different than I think anybody could have anticipated or expected. Um, you know, I was in spring training with the Yankees in March when things got shut down. And so it was just basically like the world stopped and we didn't know which way was up for four months. And so... Um, now I'm I'm one of the few people who's able to be in the stadium, and I'm at Yankee Stadium when they play, and it's um, it's pretty surreal to to be in this empty ballpark and know there's a major league game going on, and uh, I'm one of the few people who can watch it live. And um, I, I it it I guess uh, post-apocalyptic might be a good way to to describe it, um, dystopian maybe. Um, it, it's just the energy is lacking without the fans in the building, and. Um, you know, during summer camp, they, they did their kind of three-week spring training, and that was strange. But now that they're actually playing games and, and you've got to lock your mind into these games count in the standings, these games matter. It was different when it was just workouts and you were watching the Yankees play against each other. To see the Yankees play against other teams like the Red Sox or the Phillies or uh, whatever, I, I, it's just it's strange to lock it in. The, the batter versus pitcher showdown still seems real, and uh, you can forget for a little while what's going on but then you know when judge hits the ball out in the bleachers and it's forever and nobody's there to pick it up then you kind of snap back to reality a little bit and um you know for me personally our interactions are very limited we don't get to go to the clubhouse there's no face-to-face with the players anymore everything is over zoom and i think we all understand that that's temporary and it's necessary in this environment but i think there is something missing with the coverage it's it's definitely more difficult to uncover little nuggets like I'm just telling you about the 2009 Yankees um, we're not really getting those because everything's happening in a formal interview setting where um, the player is sitting at a microphone with a television camera or a laptop on and there's a media relations person right there listening to every word and orchestrating the press conference so um, I, you know it's it's a little artificial but um, like I keep saying it's 
look, I'll take 60 games and this environment over zero games, which is where it looked like we were headed a few months Amen. ago. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely, Brian. So a couple of things. One, uh, pinning it on the Astros is not a hard sell here. We embrace that with uh, <laughs> both arms. And, I, figured, uh, yeah. I figured this was a friendly audience <laughs> this is, for that. Yeah. Is, man. So, you know, um, we're, we're, we're all about uh, taking off your shirt and show us your clicker. Uh, so we embrace that one. We, we, we were fortunate enough uh, to interview um, Joan Ryan. I don't know if you've come uh, cross paths with Joan. She covered the San Francisco Giants for, for, I don't know, maybe 30 years as a beat writer with them. And she wrote a wonderful book called Intangibles that talks about team chemistry. And it's very interesting because there's a piece in there that, that your Mission 27 reminds me of. You talk about A.J. Burnett and, and Posada. And she talked about Bonds and and uh, Jeff Kent, and so how how did you see that? Because she said Bonds and Kent really didn't like each other at all, but the team chemistry, the the way they relied on each other, that kind of trust. Did you see that with with uh, what you learned about Posada and and AJ? You know what was interesting, and I haven't read that book, and I do need to go check that out because that sounds very interesting, but. Um, I, I think that with AJ and Posada, they tried to make it work. I don't think there was any, um, certainly not on AJ's part. There was no ill will there. Um, you know, they tried, it just didn't click. It clicked better with AJ and Jose Molina. And he certainly would not have been the first pitcher in history to have issues going to a certain, uh, certain catcher. Look, Greg Maddox and Javi Lopez didn't click forever in Atlanta, but, um, you know, even in the Yankee environment, there were pitchers who did not like to throw to Posada. He was a very offensive-minded catcher, and uh, the Yankees understood that. They understood that whatever shortcomings he had defensively uh, would be overshadowed by his bat, similar to what the Yankees see right now with Gary Sanchez. And now it might not, might not be a great example with Gary, but that's what they see. And so I, I think that um, – what we uncovered in that were, were two things that I want to discuss here. First of all, was that AJ never went to the Yankees and said, you've got to get me away from him. As a matter of fact, AJ was very reluctant to uh, go to Girardi or the coaching staff and try and, and try to get away from Posada or not be teamed with Posada. And at one point, CC Sabathia told us that he and Andy Pettit cornered AJ and said, you have to go to them and tell them you don't want to throw to Posada. You have to throw with Molina. And AJ said, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to alienate a teammate. And the second part was that once Girardi did make that decision and decided essentially they weren't going to work together anymore, um, Posada was very hurt by that. And he continues to be hurt by that 10 years later. He said that he felt like AJ stabbed him in the back. And, uh, you know, that's a quote we put in there. And, and that um, he felt – I think there was a miscommunication there because – AJ swears up and down that he didn't go to the coaching staff and say, I can't work with this guy. It was actually his teammates who uh, planted that seed in the manager's ear. And look, Girardi saw everything that was going on. He saw that AJ was pitching better with Molina. Uh, these are, that's why you pay a manager to make these tough calls. But Jorge, Jorge was very sensitive and um, continues to be. I, I think that, you know, if you ever needed a quote, just covering the Yankees for those years, if you needed a quote about how well things were doing, you could get a, a solid quote from, from Derek Jeter or any of the other guys in that room. But if you, if things were going bad and the Yankees lost five in a row and then there was a blowout loss to end a road trip or something, you went to Posada's locker because he would give you the unvarnished, uh, no BS quote about where things really were. And 
that's really why I enjoyed covering Jorge because it, it, there was nothing any there was nothing fake with him. He didn't hide how he felt, and um, I think that uh, you, that came through as we were interviewing him again for the book, and that he was still upset all these years later about feeling slighted and the fact that uh, Molina wound up catching uh, AJ Burnett in the most important games of the year, and that they just never really did get a chance to get on track. He felt like uh, if they had kept going at it, they would have figured it out, but they just ran out of time. Yeah, it's great. The other thing, Brian, you, you, you said something similar to what Joan said about being in a stadium with no one there. She was saying at one point to us in the interview that you might want to put an asterisk next to everyone's stats because playing without fans is really hard for these guys. The kind of energy they get coming, I mean, just coming to Yankee Stadium with two strikes on you. I mean, that's just, it's crazy in there when you got two strikes on you and, and you don't have that anymore. So they keep talking about teams that can muster up enough of this internally to win. Are you, are you seeing that as, as coming true, ringing true? Yeah, I think, I think it's, there's two sides to it, really. I think that there are players who may struggle in that environment, who rely on the fans to be that 10th man and provide that energy and, and kind of push them in big moments. And then there's other players, I think, who don't mind it so much. You know, Clint Frazier the other night um, said that he actually found it easier to concentrate and focus because he could just lock in without uh, any distractions around him. So um, I, I think that there are also players who feed off the energy of a crowd. And I'm thinking specifically of, you know, say a Garrett Cole, who is uh, when he's going deep into a game and, and needs to kind of find that extra gear late to say, get through a seventh or eighth inning. I think that the, the crowd, a standing crowd of 45,000, the Bronx can propel you there where as if you step off the mound and you look up and you see nothing but empty blue seats and this kind of piped in fake artificial noise, I think it might be, a little more difficult to generate that adrenaline inside yourself. And so um, I think that the teams that succeed in this environment will be a, the teams that can police themselves from within and, and keep guys adhering to the protocols, keep everybody healthy, but secondly um, to motivate themselves and have a goal in mind. I think that, you know, what the Yankees talked about was, that their goal doesn't change. The Yankees' goal every year is to be the last team standing to win the World Series, and clearly that that hasn't happened since 2009. But in the case of this team, I think that they are fed by the failure to to, to be cut short by Houston twice and by Boston once in the last three years. That they've gotten close and haven't been able to push to the next level. And um, you know, as Aaron Judge was saying, uh, look, just keep your head down, do what you got to do here. We're together for two months. And if you want to go out to restaurants or whatever, you do it in November. Right now you belong to us. And I think that's the mindset that these teams have to have is that, uh, and we're already seeing it with, you know, teams like Miami and St. Louis that are struggling with health uh, related to this COVID environment. Look, I mean, we can have a debate about if we should be playing baseball in the middle of a pandemic or not, but the fact is we are doing it. So if you're in it, you might as well win it, I think. Yeah. You know, speaking of, of Aaron Judge, um, admittedly, we're Yankee fans and we love all the Yankees and, and love Aaron Judge. I do th- I do think even what you just said there shows that he's definitely a leader on the Yankees team. He's definitely, I think, one of the faces, if not the face of, of Major League Baseball. One, wondering about your assessment of Aaron Judge and, and, as, a, and as a Yankee fan, shamelessly, what do you think uh, his future will be? remain in uh, in the Bronx. 
Uh, I don't know. And I, the reason I say, I, I definitely think my answer has changed over the last couple of years. I mean, look, they, within a month of him coming up to the big leagues for good, they built a, uh, a seating area for him in right field, the Yankee Stadium. So I, I think the only thing that can prevent him from finishing his career with the Yankees is injuries. And uh, we know how great he can be when he's right. He hit 52 home runs in 2017. He was uh, the unanimous rookie of the year. I think we can argue he probably should have been the MVP over Jose Altuve, but um, he hasn't put together a fully healthy season since then. And some of that is not his fault. Look, you know, anybody can get hit with a pitch and break a wrist. I think um, I don't fault him for that. The oblique thing from last year, uh, that judge has even said it was a conditioning thing. So that is on. Him. And, um, and, you know, I think that the way he plays the game is also a factor. Um, the, the fractured rib and the collapsed lung that he dealt with earlier this year, that stems from a, a diving catch in the outfield. And I'm not saying I don't want Judge to dive for balls, but, um, you know, I think that when you do play the game full out with a, a 6'7", 280-pound body the way he does, um, you know, a big boy hits the ground and it makes a, a lot of a lot of noise. So um, I, I think that that is the one thing that can um, hold him back. And, you know, the Yankees are going to have a decision at some point here. Um, the Yankees obviously have the financial resources to go sign a Garrett Cole and to go trade for a Giancarlo Stanton. And they can absorb that, but they can't keep everybody. Right. right. And so. Uh, at some point yeah. here, they're going to have to make a decision with a with an Aaron Judge, with a Glaber Torres, with some of these other guys who are on the team, a Luke Voigt, DJ LeMayhew, uh, Gio Urshela. You know, which of these guys here for good and which of them is just here for now? And I think that Judge is still, you know, if I had to guess right now, I would think that he will get a contract extension and stay with the Yankees. But um, his health over the next couple of years, I think will do a lot to determine whether that actually happens or not. Yeah, so on that, just um, just your your thoughts on what's happening now with Judge and Stanton. How, how worried should we be as Yankee fans? Somebody asked me this yesterday, and I, I said, you know, they said on a scale of 1 to 10, what would be your concern level with Judge? And I said if it was 162, probably a 3 or a 2 right now, but only because it's a 60-game sprint to the finish, it's probably a 7 because – uh, these games all mean so much. Every game is basically the equivalent of a three-game series. So every game that he misses now, um, you're, you're taking off the calendar. And look, I think that the way the Yankees are playing, the way that the postseason picture has been changed for this year, the Yankees are going to be playing in October. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. But I do think that, um, you know, when you're talking about a Stanton who's now going to miss three to four weeks, I mean, that's basically half the season. So um, if if Judge is going to be anything like that, the Yankees could have a problem. I don't get the sense that it is um, so far. I I know that they're pretty sensitive when they talk about injuries with Judge. And um, and I think that was reflected with the way that Aaron Boone kind of talked around it a little bit and has tried to be very cautious with what he said, because I think Judge is sensitive to uh, the criticism of him being injury prone at this point. Um, you know, like I said, not all of this is his fault, but uh, the fact is he hasn't had a fully healthy season since 2017. And the other fact is he looks so good when he's healthy. I mean, you know, every time he steps in a box, you think he's going to hit a home run. He, he was leading the majors in home runs and RBI. So um, they, they need him in the heart of that lineup. They're lucky that they've got a lot of depth that they can, 
call upon, but that lineup is just different with Aaron Judge in the middle of it. And, um, you know, in a situation where every game, as I said, is equivalent of three games, uh, you really want to have your best guys out there as long as you can. Uh, a different a different line of questioning, Brian, but um, I'm curious as to how your relationship with MLB.com came about and if you could tell us a little bit what it's like to, to be a, to work with them. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I, once I got a foot in the door, I just never wanted to let it close. And, um, that, that led to, uh, opportunities in the press box at Shea stadium first, and then at Yankee stadium freelancing for MLB. And, um, you know, I was one of the kind of floaters. I would go to, to Yankee or Yankee games or Mets games and maybe cover, say if the Cincinnati Reds were coming in for a three game series, I'd, I'd fill in if that beat writer didn't want to make the trip. And, um, so that was basically how I got my start. And in 2006, the off season of 2006, Marty Noble, who covered the Mets at that time, um, he had some kind of illness or injury and couldn't travel to the winter meetings. And so I was covering the Mets during the 06 winter meetings. And I heard that, you know, through the grapevine that Mark Feinstein, who covered the Yankees for MLB.com and who we would later go on to write a book together, um, I heard he was leaving for the New York Daily News. And so that put me in a position there where, um, you know, it was just right place, right time. Very lucky. Uh, all the decision makers happened to have traveled to the winter meetings. And so anybody who was anybody who had any say in that, I, I made sure to plant that seed in their mind that, hey, I know you think of me as, as mostly a Mets guy, but I would love the opportunity to cover the Yankees. And um, that would just be a dream job. And uh, a few days before Christmas of 2006, they called me and said, all right, we, we'd like to offer you the Yankee job. And I, I accepted it before even asking what it paid. It didn't matter. I was <laughs> taking it. And so, uh, and so I, I've, uh, it, it really has been a dream job for me getting to have a front row seat for Yankee history. I mean, I, so many cool things, the closing of the old stadium, the opening of the new one, um, the, the Joe Torrey's last year as manager covering the entire Girardi era now onto the Aaron Boone era, uh, the core four transition to this new baby bombers era of Gary Sanchez and Aaron judge. And yeah, just I, I, a front row seat to history. And, and just the fact that guys like Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter, not only did I meet them, but I talked to them regularly and they know my names. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it's just, if you'd gone back in time and told me 20 years ago this was all going to happen, I, I don't think I would have believed you. This is It's Never Just a Game. We're talking to Brian Hoke, who is the beat writer for the New York Yankees for MLB.com. And honestly, Greg, can you think of two things we love more in combination? It's the New York Yankees and MLB.com. We love it. We talked yes. about it. Really, past shows, we keep talking about how wherever we are in the world, that's the best app. We can hear the Yankees, watch the games. It's fantastic. And we're lucky to have Brian on here today to talk about what it's like to, to do that for um, almost two decades now for the Yankees, which is fantastic. Last question, Brian, as we wrap this up, what, what are the most important lessons you think the NFL has to take away from what's happening with baseball to be ready next month? Ooh, that is a good question. I think that um, you've already seen what happens when, people are careless and don't adhere to the protocols and the ripple effect that it can have. I mean, look at what happened with Miami, just because a couple of guys 
I don't even think it was anything, you know, I know that there, it was out there that uh, you know, guys went out to a nightclub or a casino or something. I don't even think that's completely accurate. So, but even something as innocent as going down to the hotel lobby and getting a cup of coffee can be a major problem. And so if the NFL is going to attempt to operate the way Major League Baseball is now without the bubble, with traveling, with hotels, with uh, flying on planes and traveling in uh, I, I just think that it adds so many more points of interaction that they really need to lock down on these protocols and i know the players don't want to be um sequestered in their hotels on the road but i think that that may be the only way it can work i don't think you can have guys um going around the city and, and even going to starbucks or anything because the stakes are so high and, and look what happened to the cardinals i mean the cardinals as we speak right now have literally not played a game in August. So um, I don't know how they're going to make that up. Um, So it can really play havoc with the schedule. Even, uh, you know, when Miami had their problems, there was a ripple effect. Then the Phillies didn't, couldn't play for uh, a week. And so they had to sit out. And so I think that especially with an NFL schedule where you're looking at a very finite period of time and you can't, it's not like you can play a doubleheader to make up a game. Um, I, I think they're going to have to be very, very cautious and, and lock these guys down. And I don't think the players are going to like it. I, I know that in MLB, they're not really enjoying the idea that you know, they're used to having their freedom and their routines. It's something as simple as, you know, when I pitch in San Francisco, I go to such and such and I, I always eat here before a game and, and you can't do that stuff right now. So um, I think that you have to keep your eyes on the bigger prize here and, and understand that if we're going to do this, this is the way it has to be. Right. Well, thank you, Brian, for taking the time with us today on It's Never Just a Game. It's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, we're looking forward to your next book. Uh, honestly, we don't care what you call it as long as there are 28 in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get, I'll get started on that right now. And um, hopefully the guys on the field can yeah. figure out a way to, to make the story hold up. Great. Thanks. Thanks, thanks again. Thanks so Brian. much, Brian. Great talking to you. You got it. Take care, guys. So we're back now for our next segment of Mike in Middle America, which, by the way, was pretty popular, Greg. Yeah, it was. As we mentioned, it'll be one of the top two segments we have, <laughs> given that we have two segments. Uh, got some feedback, some strong feedback from a guy named John Beaker. Have you heard of him, Mike? Uh, there, I've, heard, I've heard tell. There's, there's yeah. So uh, Mike's oldest brother, John, who we didn't mention by name last time, mm. I mentioned the fact that he was kind of the Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, yeah. I know Mike is the youngest brother, and, and John is the oldest, so I'm sure there's going to be some wedgie stuff going on when Mike sees him at the next family reunion. <laughs> you know, he did. He called me. Said he thought the uh, he, he liked your guys' podcast. He thought uh, he thought I did a decent job. That's a that's high praise from an oldest brother. <laughs> and uh, he said, "But what's the deal?" He goes, "Everybody's getting a shout out from me." He's uh, I don't understand what's going on here. So uh, thanks for thanks for getting me out of the doghouse. <laughs> yes. So the, the the bigger that blazed the trail for the rest of the brothers gets mentioned on. It's never just a game. John Beaver. He, he doesn't get credit for that. He uh, he wore my parents out. He tried everything. <laughs> they caught him, and uh, there was no energy left to deal with anything. That's to the perfect. Rest. That's so, perfect. Great. 
So, Mike, we did get feedback. People liked the segment. Uh, we had uh, some difference of opinion. We all agreed that uh, kids shouldn't be coming from out of state to play football. Got a few people who sent notes. One guy sent note in all caps that said, these kids should play grow up, is what he said. Really? Yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. So I, I thought, okay. And then, of course, and, go uh, ahead. That might have that might have been from my brother John. Though. He was it, angry about. It. Yeah, it was. It was. It was actually not someone who was anonymous, but because we did Mike in Middle America, we had a number of people send stuff asking if they could represent parts of the country. There was one person who asked if he could do Redneck from the South. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's going to be a no. It's a hard no <laughs> on that. We're going to pass on that one. Uh, so we believe the genius is that it's Middle America, and it's even more genius because it's Mike. So, Mike, today, today's question has to do with music. Now, everyone should also know this, that um, my wife, Marianne, uh, <clears throat> wonders how I am so close with Mike, given the fact that I love the Beatles, and he's not, he's not a Beatle fan. She doesn't see how it's inconsistent. <laughs> so this one is about... <laughs> what, what do you get to he say your defense there, Mike? Right. Yeah. Huh? What's your defense? Well, here, okay, here's here's the story on that. But uh, that that was, uh, you know, we one day you discovered that, and I think you looked right at me and said, I can't be your friend anymore. <laughs> That's exactly what you said. That's it. Now, in fairness, I didn't say that they're not, like, you know, one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time. I understand the, the impact they've had. I just, it's just not, uh, I mean, coming, you know, when I'm 64, is that really a song? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So, so okay. I, a song that's getting too close. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll like them. Yeah, nine lighten that up a little. Uh, so, so, uh, so that's just a little bit of background there. Um, Mike and I also play Name That Tune. Now, the Name That Tune game we play, Greg, requires you to sing the song to the other person. Oh, jeez. You can't play it. You have to sing it, which for one of us makes it very hard to know what the other song is, what the song actually is, <laughs> that the person's singing. But you have to sing it. So, you, you know, when, when all of a sudden you get... You get serious radio 70s. That's when you pop out those songs and you call Mike and you start singing something um, he's never heard before. See if you can catch him in, in that. So music is a part of our, our, of our friendship. And uh, today's Mike in Middle America, we're going to start with a conversation about music, Mike, and what's been happening in Iowa with your son talking about uh, popular musicians. Okay. So uh, the... the- to set the table for this one, my uh, my youngest son, he's 21, um, and uh, he likes to go to have a good healthy debate. Let's just call it that way. So he, he, we got into a spirited debate about music one night. We were watching, we were uh, streaming stuff on TV, watching YouTube videos, watching uh, uh, all kinds of things, and he would pull up Ed Sheeran videos. And uh, Ed Sheeran, if, if you haven't paid attention to this stuff, has like literally like a billion views on some of his videos. It's, it's insane. How many people have have uh, streamed that and watched it? And so he kind of started going down a path of, uh, you know, he's the most significant uh, artist <laughs> of all time. And uh, and uh, and I, I, I quickly kind of responded with, what about the Beatles? No, I didn't say that. But I did say, uh, I, I said, that's that's crazy talk. That's uh, I, I love Ed Sheeran, by the way. We've gone to see Ed Sheeran. If you haven't gone to see him, I would highly recommend it. The guy's an amazing talent. Um but uh, to say that he is in a category at this point with some other, you know, groups like I'll, I'll say Elvis, the Beatles, um, maybe the Stones, and then Michael Jackson. I, those are the ones that I kind of think of that, 
I'd say, changed the landscape of music and, and changed the whole trajectory of music. And their significance is, is clear and will be clear forever, I think. Whereas I think Ed Sheeran is very good. He uh, clearly seems to be the king of uh, YouTube videos in that piece right now. But I don't know that he differentiates himself all that much from some of the other artists that are out there. So, it, it, you know, it just led to a lot of debate. And he, you know, my son, just, i got to be fair, he wasn't like saying he's, he's uh, Sheeran has, Ed Sheeran has had the uh, significance of those guys. But he was just saying that in today's, you know, land, music landscape, he, he stands out. Um, but he, he made a really good point that, that it's really – the point of entry into music right now is so different than it was, let's say, when it was Elvis. And you had to get somebody to discover you. You had to get a recording contract. You had to get stuff out on the radio and get people to listen to you. And now anybody can make a YouTube video um, and can put it out there. And I'm pretty sure that's how Ed Sheeran got it start. He just started making these YouTube videos and got this huge following. And then he got picked up, and 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 now he is what he is. So, um, Mike, how did, how, what was your counter-argument to him? About Elvis and the, and the Beatles. Well, I started off with saying the, that Elvis fans and uh, the Beatles fans don't know how to stream anything. So not, <laughs> they don't know. They don't know. They don't know what the Google machine is, and they were confused by the www. So, so, it, uh, so I, you know, I, I said it's, it's it's an apples and oranges thing, and actually, it kind of it kind of morphed into you could make it a sports discussion too. Is how do you compare athletes of today? to athletes of 30, 40, 50 years ago. I think it's, I mean, I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on these, these pitchers now. If they win 20 games, that's kind of rare anymore, isn't it, that a pitcher oh, wins yeah. 20? Very rare. And, and what, what was the guy on the Reds, the uh, last guy to win 30? Denny McLean or something was his name? Yeah, and, that's a long time ago. Yeah, but, I mean, so what's the difference? See, those guys pitched every three days. So you go back to Satchel Page, you pick, pitch every day. And why? why is it? Is it just because they're they got so much money invested in these guys that they protect them and pitch them every five days and they won't let them go over 110 pitches or whatever it is? And you know, I was watching the game the other night, the Cubs pitcher, and it, it got broken up in the seventh or eighth, but he had a no hitter going and he was nearing 100 and some pitches. And it's early in the season, it's a short season. I was pretty convinced that they were going to have to yank him out and not even give him a chance at a, at a no hitter. That was uh, um, you, Darvish. It was the seventh inning for the Cubs and he gave up a home run. So the. He did. No hitter and the shutout all went the way of one pitch, but I'm sure that at 110 pitches they would have taken him out of the game. Yep, I agree, and I think if uh, I think manager Ross was probably was like they were winning four to one at that point, he was probably like, thank God that guy just hit a home run because now I don't have to be scrutinized for pulling this guy out because I got to keep him for this this short horse race we got going on this year. So I, anyway, I, I got off the topic of the music, but it, to me it's it's just interesting as like how do you compare. Uh, something like music uh, uh, in today's era with today's technology and access to music the way it's so different um, to the significance of some of those acts I talked about. And I, I still would argue, I don't think anybody anymore because of the landscape will be as game changer as I'll say Elvis, the Beatles and Michael Jackson. I think those three music artists, completely changed the landscape and opened up the door for a whole bunch of other groups to come rushing in Beatles invasion, all that, you know, the, the British invasion, I should say with the Beatles, that kind of stuff. Those were the game changers. And I don't know that there'll be another 
game changer like that, giving, given the way music is delivered to us now. What do you guys think about that? So it's been a while, maybe a long time since anyone's interviewed us on the show. It's nice. And so Mike uh, asking us questions from middle America. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the first thing I would say is that um, the uh, YouTube thing's a funny one because as we've mentioned with our father, when he got a computer, we asked him what kind of computer he had. And he said, what, when he said the YouTubes? I got the YouTubes. I got the YouTubes with DHL. DHL. <laughs> <laughs> I got the Googles. And the YouTubes, and uh, and then he thinks he actually that everything that's on YouTube and yep. the, and it, it is inside his computer. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's in there. It's stored for you can return. So this, re, uh, this reinforces. Does your dad have the mainframe for is that, that that YouTube operates off? Of? I think he, he, he might even have a Cray computer in his basement that uh, can run faster than any computer on earth. He would know it. He though. would. He, he. I think he puts books on it. He just uses it as a bookshelf. But this reinforces the fact that you know. Um, the older older generation can't get on the, on the YouTubes and uh, get uh, a billion views. If if the number of views actually meant it was a great song, then Gangnam Style is one of the greatest songs and one of the greatest musicians of all time. So uh, you know Ed Sheeran's great. I think he's great. I love him, but he, I mean, he's certainly not the Beatles. And uh, so uh, those kinds of arguments. I, what I also love, Mike, is when when I'm watching a a YouTube video or a music video with my kids, and you tell them that's not Britney Spears' song, by the way. That's somebody else's song. Uh, it's not hers. Uh, you know, but um, you could make the argument, though, that he is an example of a shift, right? Because in some ways we're saying Elvis and the Beatles, which I agree, Mike and, and Michael Jackson, they transformed how things were done. I mean, you could make the argument that this guy and a few others like him are are, are really in a process of doing the same thing because now you are going to Google or the right. Googles, as Pop would say. Right. Now now people are doing that, and, and so... Maybe he really is at the leading edge of something that that's transforming something and that will right. probably metamorphosize yeah. over time. You could you could definitely make yeah. that argument. And I think it's pretty interesting that it's Ed Sheeran because uh, the um, what was that the movie the uh, movie out of the UK I think it was called Yesterday where the guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so he's, and he's great at, he's fantastic in it. He, yeah, uh, he's he's doing the head to head with the Beatles, which you can, you know even he's like putting down his his. Uh, Guitar saying, I can't compete with that song. Yeah. Right. You can't. Right. He so. said, I, you know, you win. Uh, he also I thought the song should have been called Hey Dude, which I thought was right. That, yeah. <laughs> yes. So on the note, on the music note, before we get to the, the baseball piece here, I, last night um, there was silence in my home, which is rare. And uh, I went on to Netflix and I watched um, this documentary on David Foster, hmm. the hit maker. And very, very interesting thing. Two, there are three, three people that he's, he's helped a lot of people from Earth, Wind, and Fire on. Um, but he was told he had to go to Canada to see this young woman. And he said, to be honest, she, she was successful in Quebec already, but I wanted to go see her. And she wasn't singing anything in English. And that, of course, is Celine Dion. Mm -hmm. And he made her first album and, uh, in English, which changed her whole life. And then he went to a wedding with the former prime minister of Canada and his daughter was getting married. And he said, listen, David, you got to listen to this guy. He's going to say, we got a wedding singer. You got to listen to him. And he basically said, look, I, this is my job. I don't, people don't tell me to, who to listen to. And it was Michael Buble. Oh, no kidding. He sang, he went up to him and said, Hey Mikey, here's $5,000 to pay whatever bills you have in town. You're getting on a plane with me now and you're going to stay in my bungalow. We're making an, al <laughs> we're making an album. Basically, 
I mean, that's how Michael Blake got started. And then the other crazy one was, you know, the, the prayer song with Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion. Uh, Bocelli got missed a flight from Germany, couldn't make some show. So he calls this guy and says, hey, I need someone who can sing the prayer. He sends him five different guys. He said the first three guys were terrible. Got to the fourth guy. He said, I, I got to have this guy. He's 17 years old and it's Josh Groban. Yeah. He calls yeah. Josh Groban on the phone and Groban basically says to him, uh, I can't sing that high. How tight will my pants have to be to sing that high? I can't <laughs> sing that high. And he hangs up on him. Oh, jeez. And, and, and Foster calls him back and said, maybe you didn't understand me. You'll get your butt down to this, stu- this studio, down to this theater at 3 o'clock. And then Josh Groban's life changed forever. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah. That's, you know, so anyway. Uh, so before we go to baseball, one thing I wanted to ask you is this. This kind of argument between the generations, we've, I, it happened in our home recently. Um, and, I, and I think LeBron James is a great, great player. I enjoy watching him. I think he's one of the greatest of all time. But the argument always is, is you know, Le- LeBron or Michael, right? Right. And, and right. with and with all of uh, my my with my sons who are obviously younger than we are, you know, it's LeBron. LeBron's everything. And then right. that show, what the Last Dance, came on, and then everybody's thinking. And I've, I've been telling them the whole time, I think LeBron's great. I'm not talking down about him at all. I think he's awesome. But you never saw Michael. You you never saw Michael Jordan and what he did. And then when these guys. Because I, I, I personally still think he's the best. That's my opinion. And they... Uh, and I'm, I would agree. I would agree. And, and, and I love Magic Johnson and think he was unbelievable. Even, even as a Celtic fan, I love Magic Johnson. But when those young guys started watching that show, all of a sudden it started to crack a little bit. That solid wall of LeBron just started to crack a little bit. It was amazing to watch. Right. right. I, I, that's, a, that's another great debate to have. And, and yeah, you can't take anything away from you know, what LeBron can do. And, and physically at his size, what he's capable of doing. And, yeah. and Magic was a little bit that way, too. Just, just like people don't come along and, and be 6'8", six, 6'9", six, and, and move like that. But, I mean, what, what Michael Jordan did, and, and I think that's, that's great that they, you know, they watch that and see that. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's back when they played defense, too. You know, what would yeah. it be like to actually play defense once in a while? So, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear, and I saw Michael Jordan play live. Me too. Uh, the Bucks one time in Milwaukee when I was living up in Green Bay, and, and he was clearly the best player player on the court and the best player in the league. I mean, it just wasn't even a close second, I don't think, at that time. So, so this yeah. is the point of, of the Mike in Middle America. We this it, It's never-ending. We'll have questions to be answered at all times. So the question on the music one, clearly we're asking Mike in Middle America, is Ed Sheeran the greatest artist of all time because he's got the Googles? at numbers no one else has. And I would have to say uh, there's just no way. Greg made a great point that maybe he's changed the way in which the metrics will be. You know, he's, he's changed the way people get into the business. He's changed some of the, the way it'll be measured. I get that, but to me, no way. I don't think there'll ever be another you know, uh, group or, or individual that, that uh, has the impact. And I'm going to say, if you make me pick one, I'm going to say Elvis. I think Elvis is the most impactful musical person of the last hundred years. Yeah. Tremendous. Tremendous. And he has a great birthday, January the 8th. That's all I'm going to say about that. He's <laughs> the kid and the king. The, me, the kid me, and the king. Exactly. Me, me, the, me, the kid and the king. So, Mike, to the baseball thing, before we wrap this one up, the um, interesting thing is that Garrett Cole of the New York Yankees, surprise we're mentioning that. He, that. Can you say that sentence Garrett again? Garrett Cole of the New York Yankees. Thank you. 4-0. And he... Uh, he has won 20 straight games. 
yeah. But that's not the record. The record is 24, and that record's held by Carl Hubble, who had 24. But the, the, the this interesting thing, we talk about this people pitching, Mike. First of all, Hubble strikes out five, five Hall of Famers in a row in an All-Star game. And the first three strikes out are Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Jimmy Fox Gee. in one inning. And, and, the, and the year before, he pitched an 18-inning shutout. <laughs> 18 innings in 1933, he pitched 18 innings. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get guys, you can't get guys to pitch that's, past seven. That's a month, that's a month for a right. pitcher now. Right. You know, it's, 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 and I don't know if it's because um, they just know more about the mechanics of the arm and they don't want to push something and there's just certain people that can handle that kind of thing and most people can't it might be that back then a guy's stuff diminished the more they pitched but the hitters weren't as good as they are now i mean right. it could, could be and 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 the hitters weren't as you know weren't as adept at, at just punishing a pitch that uh, when a pitcher misses i i don't know what it is or it's just people are softer today than they used to be I, but yeah. you know when you hear these stories about these guys that would pitch crazy amounts of innings and and you know bob feller's from right here in middle america and uh you know he, he you look at some of the stuff he did unbelievable some of the stuff he did in his career and um they would never have a pitcher pitch like that no. anymore and, then, and maybe it'll never, it'll never be comparable i don't think maybe that's one of the arguments some of the argument could be that they actually if they'd let him pitch 18 innings they could pitch 18 innings but they don't so now they've got them um, physically and psychologically bound by this 100, 110 pitch thing. So uh, I'm thinking I, a guy like Scherzer can go past that. I think a guy like Scherzer can, but but anyway. Mike, thank you so much for taking, for taking this, uh, the time, for taking a break at the lake and talking to us uh, on It's Never Just a Game. We'll continue to ask these difficult questions to Mike in Middle America. And as you can tell now, listeners, the guy can cover a gamut. The subjects could be almost anything just short of nuclear fusion. I think we can ask Mike in middle America. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'll try to get in another argument with one of my other Yeah, do that. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care. So another great conversation, Greg. Very much enjoyed talking to Brian. Yeah, I did too. There it is. I mean, we are Yankee fans, yeah. so I was glad you asked him about some of those kind of inside story things. It was fun to hear him tell tell stuff that we just didn't know about. Yeah, and, and like you said this morning, you open up the website and everything you read, he wrote. Yep. Yeah, because we're not going to read about other teams. Yeah, I went to yeah went to Yankees dot com and wanted to know about the game because I was at dinner last night. And I didn't actually see the game, and. um Sure enough, everything I brought up was was by him. Yeah, and the, what I found interesting was when you asked him about Judge, because in my house there's an argument about you know who's going to be the next Yankee captain, mm-hmm. and typically the argument breaks down to Judge or Torres. And uh, having listened to some others speak about Judge being the face of baseball, even though he is not Mike Trout. No, he's, he's great, but Mike Trout does not strike out that much. No, he doesn't. Um, but when you asked him, are they going to sign Judge to a long-term contract, I, I was a little surprised. I was too. I mean, I think he, he knows what he's talking about, and I think he was guarded in what he, he said. He's a smart guy. But he did not come out and say absolutely. Yeah. Which is what I wanted to hear. Me too. <laughs> and then he said what we don't want to hear, which is he gets hurt. Yeah. And then what happened? 
He got hurt. Yeah. They just stuck him on a 10-day IL. Can't yep. call the DL. Yes. You know, it was interesting that he, when speaking of those injuries, he did kind of you know, bifurcate them, those kinds that just happened because you're an aggressive player and those kinds that maybe you could have done something about. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, and we, we, Short season, he misses 10 days. He's going to miss 8 to 10 games. And these are these are all home games right now. The Yankees are playing well at home. He will mill, he'll miss all of those, and um, maybe that's okay that he's not home. But he hits so well. He, d- he does, and, and he's been playing so well. Yeah, so it's a big loss right now. And then the stories about the 2009 team. Yeah, and uh, okay, okay yeah. Robertson in the suit. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> I love what he said. The guy said he'll buy A. Rod will buy you another suit. Yep. And all I could think of, Greg, it's crazy. Not on the same level, obviously, and you don't even know where I'm going right now, but we were on a baseball tournament when Nella was a kid, and we went to St. Louis with his team. And he was younger than most people. This was the year that he was a little nervous, and I had to, had to hit him. Remember that story? You had to hit him. Yeah, I had to hit him. So two stories. We're assuming that the statute of limitations yeah. has run on yeah. this. So I didn't want to say to him, hey, man, you look scared, because he was small. He was small. That I means 6'4 now, but he was tiny, and he was like uh, 10. So I said, what, what's, uh, what, what's the problem, man? How can I help you? And he said, like, like, like Rocky and Mick uh, in the movie, he said, you got to cut me, Mick. I said, how can I help you? He's like, you have to hit me. I said, what? Nobody can throw harder than you. Nobody who's 11 can throw hard 12 can throw harder than you. So if you hit me a few times, I'll get it out of my system. No kidding. So I took him to a batting cage in Montgomery at a park, and I tried to hit my son with a baseball. Hard enough that it wouldn't be, he wouldn't say, come on. I couldn't hit him, Greg. Because oh, it goes against everything. No. Yeah. No. I couldn't hit him because he was too fast. Oh, he was getting out he's of out the way. He's out of the way. He's ducking. He knows what's coming. <laughs> he knows I'm going to hit him. He's ducking. He's weaving. He's pounding. I can't even hit him. Now I'm throwing harder to try to hit him before he can move. I had to stick both of his feet in ball buckets so he couldn't move. Hit him in the back twice. <laughs> Jeez. And, and he was, that was it. It was fine. After that, it was all, you know, this game is, uh, 90% mental, and and uh, he was stuck. What did Yogi Bear say about that? I don't know that. Something like you know, 90% mental and 50% in your head? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, there, so this is that same year. So we're going to go to St. Louis to play this tournament. And uh, the coolest part about the whole tournament was it was next to a cornfield. So I had all the kids come out of the cornfield, like Field of Dreams, have their pictures taken because it wasn't going to work for This team wasn't very good. I mean, in the end, the, uh, the guy who ran the team, his wife, uh, took the funds out of the, out of the bank account from the team and left. Are you seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, but before that, we are staying at a Holiday Inn, which, you know, Holiday Inn with like 10 Little League baseball teams there. The whole thing just full of these kids between the ages and their little brothers and sisters. So you had kids between the ages of five and, and, and 14 in the small swimming pool, which is like a breeding ground for bacteria yeah. in there. And this coach was throwing the wives in the pool. Gee. Like what was happening to Robertson. Right. Right. So my wife said, I'm not going in that pool. So this, by the way, this guy, I mean, I don't have a chance with this guy either, Greg. I mean, I think he carries Tonka trucks, real ones on his shoulders, kind of big <laughs> dude. I had to walk up to him and say, whatever his name was, I had to say, listen, don't even think about coming over here, picking up my wife and dropping in the pool. Do you understand what I'm telling you? She's not going in that pool. I don't care about team unity. I don't care about anything. Now, I didn't know if I was going to be at the bottom of the pool after it's over, Greg. <laughs> and, and somehow, I, I don't know, the look was good enough or the guy just, I don't know what it was. He's like, it's okay, Angie, I won't, I won't do that. Well, that's good. Yeah. 
I don't know what would happen then if he tossed her in. So that was my Robertson moment. That's what I was thinking about when he was telling us about Robertson. I was thinking about my wife getting picked up and dropping a pool when that was not going to happen. Well, I was thinking about something about baseball as well on a trip um, when it came to what he said about when I asked him about how he got his job at MLB. And uh, I think this is a recurring thing that we're seeing with people that, we're, that we've, we've talked to on the show and people who are going to be coming on the show that when people want to do something in their lives, they really want to make it happen, they're willing to have the, the faith in themselves, the belief in themselves that they'll actually try it. You know, yeah. And here's a guy who says, I mean, he flat out said, I was a freelancer yeah, with the Mets. Right. Right. And then he kept doing it and doing it well. And he believed in himself enough. If you, I don't know if you remember what he said was, I, I kept telling him I could do more. Right. Right. I kept telling him. Then Charles Davis, who was our first you know, person ever to be on uh, our show, told me the same thing. That's what he did. It was to be able to just tell people, I can do more. And then... And then they gave him probably one of the most coveted jobs yeah. that you could have. I mean, yeah. we Yankee fans were biased, but come on. I mean, there are other great, you could, the job of the Dodgers would be great and with the Red Sox would be great, but this is a seriously important well, yeah, if you're, job in the, in the yeah. MLB. Yeah, and you're a New York kid. Yep, and he took the chance yep. on himself. He believed in it, and he did it. And I think, I don't care how old you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what race you are. I don't care. It doesn't matter at all. That's like the essential thing that you have to have and that is the willingness to believe in yourself and take a chance and then have the guts to ask yeah and that's the and that's how the model works greg it starts with that belief yep and, and he knew what he wanted from the beginning and uh, i'm sure he loved doing stuff with the mets but he really wanted to yeah do the yankee thing and he believed in that and i think maybe that's what set me off this morning in the conversation and listening to the the talk show this morning when he was talking about college football um and the fact that it's not really doesn't have a coherent strategy and it's all over the place. But what he said was, uh, it could change any moment. And then he said this, and this is how he said it. All it's done is give people this hope. And that's, that doesn't do good for anybody. Oh, yeah. That's how he said it. That doesn't do good for anybody. Yep. It's just a fairy tale of optimism is what he said. Yeah. There it is, right? Yeah. The other side of it. Yep. The, the, this negative side that we, we gave them hope. Yeah, we wouldn't want to do that. No. Everybody wants no. to be cynical and down. Right. It's such a good life it, when you're cynical and is. down. It is. I mean, so that's what I think set me off on him. Yeah. And then after that, I thought, you know, I don't have a much, uh, I don't put much stock in what you're about to say because I think, cause I think you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we won't say the, the names of these people. One day we will, Greg. Yeah. Because it would be great to actually have a conversation with them. They won't have it with us, but... Love to have it because in his dismissiveness, we, we're not smart enough to have a conversation with him. Anybody who disagrees with him, not smart enough. But anyway, so th- that his Brian's optimism is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, believing in himself, willing to take a chance, work hard though. He's like we're willing to do more. Then we tell people all the time when they ask about questions they were asked during the course of their careers in different companies. But um, one specifically, they would ask, uh, "What do I have to do to get promoted?" And there are a number of things that get in the way of promotion, right? but, but you know, there's timing and there's situations, blah, blah, blah. But mostly we tell people this, do whatever your job is and then go do something else. Go do what they don't expect you to do. Go reach out and do more. And this is what Brian yep. wanted to do. Yeah. And, and just like Charles Davis had said, I kept telling him, I, I can do more. Just give me the chance. 
And you have to have the guts to even say that because most right. of us hesitate to even do that. And then they gave him the chance and Charles got his chance and Brian got his chance. And, and I think for, for all of us, there's that, there's that same truth that if we believe in what we want to do and we're willing to take that chance and we're willing to ask in the process, again, I don't care if you're older than us, it doesn't matter. You can do this. Yeah. But even if you're old like us, there are things that you want to do that you have to believe you can do them still. Yes. We have a couple of those, Greg, that we're stuck on that we've got to get off of that and we're into the, we believe in ourselves. And then we go watch examples of others who seem to believe more. And right. we, we just need a little bit more of that. So I we're agree. not immune to this. No. We just know when we hear stupid things. Yes, exactly. I can't take it. Well, I hope I hope that uh, our listeners enjoyed that discussion with Brian because I definitely did. But again, um, this is, it's never just a game. I'm Greg Pesci. And I'm NJ Pesci. And we'll see you next Monday.